This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Indian folklore about a king who's really not thrilled about his daughter's fate. And you'll learn all about why you should listen to the guy talking to the leaves in his toilet. The creature this week is just adding to funeral expenses because you'll need a security team to ward off flaming Japanese super cats. This is Myths and Legends, episode 122. Let it be. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story was put down to paper by Andrew Lang, a Scottish writer in the 1800s who claims it was a story from India, though I couldn't really find anything else on that. It's a fairy tale, so it doesn't really connect to anything historically. So we'll just jump right in. For the first time in nearly an hour, the king slowed his horse. The stag was still up ahead, but no matter how many arrows he shot or how hard he pushed his steed, the elusive animal remained just beyond range. The king had outridden all of his servants and courtiers, even his own hounds. Now, the white stag hopped just up ahead, beckoning his pursuant onward. The king was aware that he had ventured deeper and deeper into the wilderness. The last home or cottage he'd seen was miles ago. With new resolve, the king sneered and continued on into the unknown land. By the time darkness fell, he had lost the stag altogether. He was long past the canyons and well into a forest. Ahead, a waterfall crashed in the darkness while the tired horse picked its way onward. That's when the king spotted the light. There, at the bottom of the waterfall, a crude lantern flickered from a cave. In the fading light of dusk, a stranger, a man, sat by the river, dropping leaves and watching them flutter down to the water. Peace be upon you, the king bellowed, making his way to the bottom of the waterfall. And upon you, peace, the old man muttered, not looking up. The king stood there confused. He really wasn't used to this. I mean, there were times when he went out in the guise of a cabbage peddler, unknown to all but his most trusted people, so he understood commoners ignoring those they felt were beneath them. But he really didn't expect such a treatment when he was out and about as the king. This nobody hermit should really know his station, respect his kings. However, the king was all alone in the forest, and the hermit likely knew the way home. He sighed, deciding to start over and play nice. So what you doing? The king willed himself to say awkwardly after watching the man for way too long. The stranger continued dropping leaves into the river. Reading the fates of men, the hermit replied, still not looking up. The king bobbed his head up and down. Cool, cool. So, they're leaves or something? Is there something I can help you with? Broke the hermit, finally meeting the king's gaze. With laughter, the king shook his head. Oh, oh, absolutely not. He didn't care about his own fate. He was a, you make your own luck kind of guy, personally. The hermit paused. Did you just quote Batman? He started to say, but he hesitated. Oh, wait, never mind. That hasn't happened yet. It'll be awesome, by the way. But carry on. The king shrugged it off. He was, however curious about his daughter. Oh, the newborn? The hermit said nonchalantly, resuming his ritual with the leaves. Yeah, how'd you... Oh. Okay, I see what you did there. So you know? Maybe, came the reply. So are you gonna tell me or what? No, probably not. Wh why not? 
the hermit explained that people didn't really want to know their fates. They thought they did, but that's only because they didn't understand. It was their fate. There was no trick. There was no variation. If you knew your fate, you put yourself in a cage. Your fate was what was going to happen. Period. The king laughed. Whatever was in store, he could take it. And he wanted to know his daughter's fate. Fine, the hermit said with a roll of his eyes. The king's daughter would marry the son of a poor slave girl, called Peruna, who belonged to the king of the north. That was set to happen, and there was nothing the king could do about it. There. Was that something he really wanted to know? Mouth agape, the king insisted that the hermit lied. But the hermit shrugged, went back to his leaves in the river. Before the king could ask, yes, he could sleep in the cave. Linens were in the hall closet, guest bathroom was the river. Enjoy. In the morning, the hermit pointed the king in the direction of home, and three weeks later, the king sat in his castle reading the letter. He pursed his lips and nodded, then burned it to ash. As he made his way out of the castle in his classic cabbage farmer garb, unknown to all but his chief advisor, he knew that he was doing the right thing. He had told the hermit that he didn't believe in fate, but the man could tell he was lying. And so he tried to tell himself that the stranger was just an old man looking at leaves in the river that doubled as his toilet. But the king couldn't stop thinking about what he had heard. He was crazy to be even considering it, he told himself over and over, but the thought plagued him. The idea of his daughter marrying the son of a slave. It wouldn't happen. It couldn't. And he would make sure of it. That's why our king wrote a letter to the king of the north, asking to buy one of his slaves by the name of Peruna. If she existed, then the king knew the hermit was telling the truth. And today, he'd received the response. Not only did she exist, but the king of the north was happy to just give her to our king. He just had to come pick her up. The king promptly replied that he would send a servant to do just that. And so he put on an accent and took a modest horse, setting off north. As they traveled, the king pointed to the sky, telling Peruna that a storm was coming. They would need to sleep there for the night. His trip north had taken little more than a day, riding fast. It proved a much longer walk back. You see, Peruna had already given birth to her baby. A boy. So the small party walked along at a slow pace. And also not on a straight path home. The king complimented Peruna on her beautiful baby as she turned and set him down on a pile of hay. He shared that he had a daughter about the same age. She was his whole life. And that's why he was so sorry he had to do this. Peruna whipped around just as the king stabbed her square in the chest. She gasped and collapsed. Her cries woke her son, and she spent her final moments crawling to him before she died. The king was sick. He stood over Pruna holding her boy, and he held the knife still covered in the mother's blood. He raised the weapon high above his head, but he couldn't do it. He had been barely able to steal himself enough to kill Peruna, but a baby? He couldn't kill a baby. Besides, he wouldn't have to. The wilderness would do that quickly enough, he was sure. The animals would be along shortly for the mother, and they would find the baby on arrival. His daughter's fate would never come to pass. Satisfied, the king mounted his horse and galloped as fast as he could, away from the baby's cries emanating from the cave. 
come on, the elderly woman barked when the nanny goat, who had been out grazing for the day, returned dry for the second night in a row. She squinted, looking out on the forest. She let her goats out to graze every morning, and someone out there was draining her best milk goat. Tomorrow, she'd take the stick and go pay the milk thief a visit. Sure enough, the next evening, she watched the nanny goat break off from the pack. As the old woman picked her way through the forest in pursuit, she saw the nanny goat walk into a cave. She gripped the stick, grimaced, and entered. Inside, she dropped the stick in surprise. There, she saw a baby, still clinging to the corpse of his mother, and he was nursing from the nanny goat. Sixteen years later, the boy, named Nur Muhammad, was coming home from work when he saw the donkey eating his cabbages. His mother had never really been able to farm on her own, and so when he came of age, he gladly planted and tended a garden for her, not only to feed them, but to make a little extra money so his mother wouldn't have to work. It was going well, except for this donkey. From the distance, he saw the donkey eating his cabbages, and he rushed to the animal. A few short whips later, and the owner of the donkey, a peddler, came running. Nur grimaced, told him that he might be able to afford for his donkey to eat wherever he wanted, but Nur could not. These cabbages were their livelihood, and the peddler needed to watch his animals better. And that was it. The peddler apologized and left, and Nur went inside. Except that wasn't the end of it. Nur and his adoptive mother had a neighbor, a neighbor who also sold cabbages, and who wasn't thrilled about their new startup disrupting his low-quality cabbage empire. He witnessed this extremely innocuous interaction from his house, and he knew he had Nur right where he wanted him. The next day, authorities came and arrested Nur for threatening to beat and murder a traveling salesman. It took weeks, but at last they dragged Nur before the king. His case didn't look good. It was his word against his neighbors, and everyone else on the street had seen Nur run after the donkey and beat him, corroborating the neighbor's story. Only the neighbor had overheard the exact conversation with the peddler, and, most importantly, the peddler left town and didn't come back which was circumstantial evidence at best, but it didn't look good for Nur if the peddler was going to ignore the king's order and refuse to return to the kingdom. Except that the peddler was quite possibly the only person who could ignore the king and live. Because the peddler was the king. He had been out again, disguised in his simple cabbage peddler getup that day, and he remembered it clearly. He was in the wrong. The neighbor was falsely accusing the young man, and the king had caught him in the act. It was time to make an example out of him. The king looked on Nur and his neighbor. There were behaviors that wouldn't be tolerated in this kingdom, and... But then the throne room doors flew open. An old woman ran into the throne room. She begged the king to stop and listen to her, to please not do anything to her son. The king held up his hand. It was cool, really. He didn't want to give away any spoilers, but she was probably going to like what he said. Wait, her son? The king looked at Nur and then the old woman okay, no, sorry, but she was way too old to have a kid that young. He was going to just have to hit the old pause button on the whole verdict thing and ask exactly what her deal was. How did this happen? As the woman explained how she had found Nur in the cave, clinging to his stabbed mother, the king grew more and more grim. This Nur, this was the boy. Right then and there, the king wanted to order him executed but he knew death for a mere threat would paint him as a tyrant. Instead, he sighed. The look of the crying mother had moved him, 
and he would be merciful. Still, Nur must learn discipline and how to control his temper. If he enlisted in the army, he could keep his head and go free today. The elderly mother bowed low before the king, thanking him. Nur was concerned how his mother would fare with him away fighting for the king, but he knew that this was the best of several bad options. He was happy to learn, then, that there was actually pay for someone in the army. He sent the pay home to his mother, who was able to live off of it without the goats or the cabbages, and Nur dutifully joined the army. We'll catch up with Nur in the army, but that will be right after this. Somewhere, man screamed, and Nur looked back. One of his men had taken an arrow to the leg, and he stumbled to the ground. Nur gripped the diplomat that they'd been sent to rescue, and pointed urgently to the edge of the cliff. There was a rope, see it? Fifty feet down, the king's men waited for him in a boat. He should start down the cliff. Nur would follow, but first he had to go back for his fallen man. The diplomat walked shakily to the cliff edge, and began his descent as Nur dashed back to the palace. The fallen soldier had already dragged himself back against the wall, as half a dozen enemy warriors advanced. It was then that the soldier heard a grunt, and saw Nur fling himself up over the wall, landing between his hurt comrade and the approaching soldiers. Swords out, and six dead or incapacitated warriors later, and the injured soldier was on Nur's shoulders as he ran for the cliff. As he neared, arrows whizzed past his head, and stuck into the ground all around him. Nur apologized to his friend and jumped. Back at camp, the men celebrated Nur. Again. Not only had he completed what seemed like a nearly impossible assignment basically by himself, but he rescued one of their men. The officer above Nur was both concerned and impressed. Concerned because the most dangerous missions that came from the king himself all went exclusively to Nur and the few people who would volunteer to go with him. He was impressed because the number of people willing to volunteer to go with Nur was growing bigger and bigger with each mission. Nur, it seemed, was as skillful as he was lucky. He not only survived, but thrived. After the latest rescue mission with the diplomat, something else, something entirely different, came down the line for Nur. It was a position that most men only dreamed of. Something people worked toward their whole lives, and which only went to the most talented of warriors. An appointment to the king's guard. Nur was going to be one of the king's personal bodyguards. Nur had an enemy. He had long suspected it when he was a mere soldier. He wasn't stupid. No one got sent on that many dangerous missions time after time for no reason. Someone high up was trying to kill him, and it wasn't until lunch that morning that it was confirmed. As a member of the King's Guard, his food came straight from the King's kitchens. Nur picked up the plate that had been set aside just for him and passed straight through the mess hall. On warm days, he liked to eat out on the street, to see the people bustling back and forth and remember his life before feather beds and gold-fringed armor. He needed to remember where he came from. He sat down on a wall, and the hungry dog bounded over, wagging its tail. Nur looked at his plate. In his mother's house, this would have been a week's worth of meat. But now, 
He could spare a bite for the dog. He tossed the dog the meat and watched the animal gulp it down without a second thought. And then sit and wait eagerly for more. Nur laughed and lifted the food to his mouth. He could feel the heat of the food nearly touch his tongue when something caught his eye. He lowered the food and realized the dog was no longer begging. It twitched on its side, yelping faintly. In seconds, the dog was still, laying in a pool of blood and foam. Dead. Nur took the uneaten food and immediately buried it, careful to hold on to the plate. Then, he took a bit of money and found a vendor in the city, buying the exact same lunch that the cook had given him. He was sure to have a bit smeared on the edges of his mouth, for when he returned the plate to the cook with a smile, thanking him for the delicious lunch. As he walked away, that smile faded. Now, he was certain. He had an enemy. The king called for him the following day. He was happy to see Nurth thriving in the king's guard, and he had a very important errand for him. Deliver this letter. Nurth looked at the envelope recently sealed with the king's signet ring. That, that was it? Just deliver a letter? Didn't they have couriers for that? The king chuckled. This message couldn't be trusted to a courier whose job it was to do exactly this. It was far too important. Nur looked at the name. The recipient was a governor in the farthest reaches of the kingdom. Nur sighed. Could he have a private word with the king? When they were alone, Nur asked the king who had recommended him for this assignment. Before the king could answer that it was a personal task, Nur continued. Because whoever it was, was definitely trying to get rid of him. He didn't know why, but the other day someone had tried to poison him. And the more he thought about it, the more he realized strange accidents kept happening to him in this city. A footbridge gave out on him just last month. And, as he was passing by a construction site late last week, a boulder nearly fell on him. It was well known that he was the best warrior in the Kingsguard. And now, someone was trying to get him far from the city. He thought, since the attempts on his life had failed, someone was trying to get him out of the picture, so they could make an attempt on the king. The king stroked his beard. Yeah, he's right. This didn't look good. Okay, here's what he'd do. He grabbed a quill, scribbled out another message, and sealed it with his signet ring. Nur would be going to another kingdom, to a powerful lord. This letter called for all the knights to come to their king's aid, and when Nur returned, together they would flush out the traitors. The king wished Nur safety and speed, the look of concern on his face right up until Nur shut the door to the throne room. At last, the king slumped back in his chair and rolled his eyes idiot. Nur's tongue stuck in his mouth. This was serious. He had to keep moving. The life of his king depended on it. Nur rested during the shade of the day and galloped fast at night, so intensely that he reached the city that should have taken him a week to reach in less than half the time. His horse nearly dead, and Nur not that far off, he finally approached the city around 11 p.m. one night. The archers at the walls lowered their weapons the moment they saw his armor. He was a member of the king's guard. Immediately, they let him inside. Though he begged them to let him see their lord, the guards insisted that, whatever it was, it could wait until morning. They offered Nur a room, but he refused, instead laying down in the garden, 
right outside the palace to wait on the Lord. He sat in the cool garden after riding for three days straight and immediately fell asleep. So because of the prophecy, the king had sent his only daughter, the one who was fated to marry the son of a slave, away when he discovered Ner. She had been sent to one of his lords, but because of a plague that broke out, she was quickly moved to another city, the same exact city to which Ner had been sent with the letter. She only had her old nurse for companionship, and the elderly woman, for some reason, couldn't understand why the princess still hated going to bed at 8.30. It worked when she was eight. Made sense that it would work when she was 18, right? Luckily, elderly sleeping nurses were super easy to sneak past. And soon the princess was walking through the garden. It wasn't the capital. There wasn't really anything to do. And no eligible guys were allowed within 50 miles of her, but... Oh, hello there. What was this? The young man slept under the trees of the garden and he was good-looking, to say the least. He wore the colors of the king's guard to boot. Hmm, might have to say hello to him when he woke up, thought the princess. Then, she noticed it. Tucked in the man's turban, which seems like a very great place to leave something you don't want to lose on a windy horse ride, was a message. She immediately recognized the symbol on the wax. It was her symbol, well, her family's, that is. She slipped the letter from the turban, cracked the seal, and read it. It was short. It said simply, Behead the messenger who brings you this letter secretly and at once. Ask no questions. The princess pursed her lips. This was just like her dad. This guy was on his king's guard. He had pledged his life to the king, and now the king was going to kill him? Also, he was super handsome, and she hadn't seen a handsome guy in, like, forever. You know what? No. No. Dad wasn't going to win this one. She took the letter, slipped past her snoring nurse, and wrote a new letter of her own. Since it was the royal seal, it was easy to duplicate. She was the princess, after all. She had won herself. The princess pressed the wax, blew on it until it dried, and went to shove it back in Nur's turban. In the garden, Nur had a fantastic dream. He dreamt that a beautiful woman patted him on his head. When he sat up to ask her name, she simply smiled and winked. He shrugged and fell back asleep. Thirty days later, the king rode up to the city, entourage in tow. He hadn't heard anything, and he had to come, had to be sure his order was carried out. His party burst through the palace doors, announcing that news had arrived that the princess had been transferred to this very palace, did the Lord do it? Was the order carried out? The Lord smiled and bowed low. He said he carried out the order without question. The couple was married immediately and without question. The morning that Nur had woken up, he carried the letter in his turban to the Lord of the castle immediately. He broke the seal, read it, looked at the man in front of him, read it again, and shrugged. All right, let's do this. When the Lord's wife heard of the wedding preparations, she snatched the letter from her husband and read it. It said, Marry the messenger who brings this letter to the princess openly and at once. Ask no questions. She said there had to be some mistake. This was just some soldier. He didn't have a title or lands or anything. The Lord should really ask the king, she insisted. But the Lord fumed. Sure, uh, one question though. Did his wife like her husband with his head? He'd been thinking about having it removed. He could go either way, 
but writing to the king would definitely expedite the process. He tapped the letter with a finger. The king said, ask no questions. Uh, hey king, should I do this thing that you asked me to do? That was a question. He rolled his eyes and resumed cake tasting and picking out colors. Just because it was a pop-up wedding didn't mean that it couldn't be a fabulous one. Nur recognized the woman from his dreams as he stood on the altar, waiting. Maybe the princess found the sleeping Nur so attractive and knew her true love at first sight and all that other fairy tale stuff. Or maybe she was just tired of being shuffled around from castle to castle, kept from any male remotely her own age, and wanted to stick it to dad. Who's to say? Regardless, the couple was swiftly married. A month later, the king was there, growling, demanding to see the letter that had been delivered to the lord. Immediately, the lord presented the paper, and the king saw the seal and the handwriting. It was his daughter's. She was sitting at the table when he arrived, dining with her new husband, Nur, the son of the slave. She smiled and waved. The king forced a smile too, waved, and then calmly asked his lord where he might be alone with his thoughts for a bit. The sounds of the party drowned out the king's screaming and breaking everything within reach. But when he exited the room, he was ready to see his daughter and his... <sighs> son-in-law. The princess thanked him for such a wonderful husband. They were very happy together, and it looked like she was already pregnant with an heir, so his line would continue. Again, the king sighed. So she had read his message. She nodded. She had. And this was her choice. It was. He nodded. After years of fighting it, he gave in. Okay, whatever. Beaming, Nerd jumped to his feet and gripped the king in a very long embrace. He had read the message he delivered to the Lord too, your majesty. Or should he say, Dad? The king grimaced and patted his new son-in-law on the back. Welcome to the family. In the end, this turned into a pretty standard fate story, sprinkled with some different twists along the way. It's from the story, quote, the king who thought he was stronger than fate. So I say it lives up to what you think it's about. I'm glad Nur ended up happy, despite all the obstacles he had to overcome. For as unlucky as his journey was, you could probably say he was actually very lucky, based on all the attempts in his life he escaped. And I'm not sure if he ever learns the truth that the king actually, you know, stabbed his mom to death in a cave and left him to die. But for now, Nur seems pretty happy. Next week, it's the story of Child Roland and the Dark Tower. And also why you shouldn't walk counterclockwise around a church. I'm serious, it's apparently extremely dangerous. If you didn't know, our sister podcast, Fictional, is in the tail end of its third season. It's classic literature with the myths and legends treatment. We're finishing up The Count of Monte Cristo this season, so to catch the full story, Dracula, some awesome sci-fi tales, and more, search for Fictional on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The creature this time is the Kasha, or the Burning Chariot, from Japan. Okay, so you're at a funeral in a certain region of Japan. People are wailing and grieving for their lost loved one, and the priest is reading the service. The temple cat is walking around inspecting the site when, out of nowhere, the cat bursts into flames, grows to be 10 times its normal size, 
and leaps down from the roof to just behind the coffin. It laughs and picks up the coffin with its super strength and runs off into the woods. The people stand there screaming and crying. Some chase after the Kasha. Some drop to their knees and wail at the heavens. I'm really kind of overselling it. This lasts approximately 10 minutes until everyone is certain the Kasha is out of earshot. When that's done, they'll congratulate each other on their performances and the priest will bring out the real coffin, the one that wasn't full of rocks for the body-snatching supercat. And I guess people will resume actual crying over the deceased. The Kasha, the burning chariot, that is only rarely on fire and who doesn't use any sort of chariot, is a cat. We've talked about Japanese supercats on the Creature of the Week before. Basically, if your cat lives too long, you're in for trouble. Because the longer its tail grows, the more likely it is to develop magical powers, live forever, and just be generally terrible. The Kasha is the worst case scenario of that. After a really old cat turns into a magical supercat, they live among us, as house cats or strays. They watch, and they wait. And then casually crash funerals, and steal the bodies of the deceased. The Kasha is lucky. It gets to do what it loves for a living. When they're on the clock, they take the bodies to hell for eternal torment. When they're not on the clock, they still steal bodies, but then it's for, no joke, eating and or puppet shows. It's apparently next to impossible to get the bodies back from the giant flaming cat. So you have two options. One, sit there and hope it's the Kasha's day off and they're just gonna use the body for a puppet show and a snack. Or two, prevent it from snatching the body in the first place. There are a couple ways to prevent it. One is, as we talked about, to stage an entire fake funeral with a box of rocks and wait for that suspicious looking cat that's been milling around to do the cat equivalent of hawking out and running away with the box before having the real funeral. Another way is to cover the coffin in razor blades, which will solve your super cat problems, but will probably create some other ones for the pallbearers. Other ways include playing an instrument that the cat hates or simply chanting, I will not let the Kasha feed on this, twice before the funeral. Gotta say, that last one really sounds like the best option. Other ways to keep rogue flaming cats from showing up at your funeral include, I guess, just not being bad. Some places say they only show up at the funerals of people who deserve it. Another way is to dock a cat's tail. As we've talked about, magic powers are directly correlated with tail length and age. So if you take away one of those variables, you won't have to chase your cat down to get it to drop the dead body it's carrying. I should say, we don't endorse docking cattails. I'm not even sure that's a thing, but if it is, it seems a little cruel. Besides, with all the evil myth podcasts running around in the world, you're probably safer just not owning a cat at all. But if you make the choice of cat ownership, you have to be okay with the fact that it might steal butter, kill you and take your identity, or steal corpses to put on horrifying puppet shows. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>